Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, June 13th by Pastor Rod Heppel. Today's message is the seventh sermon in our series entitled Growing Up in Christ Together. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. We are nearing the end of our sermon series called Growing Up in Christ Together. We have two more Sundays where we're going to be talking on this theme after today. So I went back to the first sermon in this series just to see what I had outlined there when I was explaining why we chose the title that we chose. So growing up in Christ uh, means becoming mature as a follower of Jesus. One, a person who's got strong character and faithful in their walk and they care about making other disciples as Jesus commanded. That, that's that part. And then the second part is about together, that we do this in Christian community. And in particular, I had in mind our families and our church family and how we become mature in Christ by being shaped in community. So that's the whole idea. Now, I don't think anyone comes to trust in Jesus where we receive his salvation, hoping that we'll just stay in a state of infancy. But rather, we do desire to grow, to become mature. And the emphasis in this series has really been on the together part of how that happens, that we truly need each other in order to mature in Christ. Now, it's not to say that I don't learn a lot in my own personal life, in my relationship with God. I do grow that way. But it is to say that it's in community and interacting with other people that we're shaped, that those rough edges are shaved off and maybe my narrow understanding are a little more broadly rounded out. It's through family and church family that God is shaping me to be a disciple who bears spiritual fruit. So that's kind of where uh, we've landed on this series. Um, and, And the reason why, too, is I think there's a tendency today to pull away from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe COVID's kind of forced that a little bit. You know, we think sometimes that, oh, I'm just fine. You know, I'm okay without all of you. In fact, that creates more headaches for me than it's worth. And so we pull away from the church in order to just find ourselves with God. And we, we think that that's good enough. But the, the problem with that kind of thinking is actually twofold. One, it's really not true. And two, it's not what God has asked of us. So one, it's not true because you can think that you're maturing just fine in Christ without anyone else, but it's really not being tested. It's a pretty subjective evaluation, and we tend to overstate our spirituality when we're not in community. Secondly, Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And that can only happen when we are in some level of community. That's what we were looking at last Sunday. You know, there's this curious passage in in the New Testament. It's uh, in the Gospels, and Jesus is inside a house, and he's talking to a gathering of people there. And then someone says to him, Lord, your mother and brothers are outside and want to speak to you. Uh, By the way, it's worth noting that Jesus had other siblings, right? And Jesus replies to this guy in a way that kind of sounds a little bit rude or disrespectful to his family. So in Matthew 12, it's recorded like this. Jesus replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, it is kind of a curious thing, right? Like what exactly is the point that Jesus is making here? And I think what he is doing is expanding their understanding of family. That in Christ, we have a new spiritual family. 
where we are brothers and sisters because of our mutual relationship to Jesus, our Lord. So the implication is that we need each other and that we have an obligation to love and to care for one another. So the together part is very key to the growing up part in Christ, and that's why we've titled it the way we have. So in the last few weeks, we've been looking at various ways in which we grow through bearing each other's burdens, forgiving one another, uh, serving and serving one another, through paying attention to the kind of soil that we are in order to bear fruit. And then last week, Rob was talking about our need to be in community, that we that we might be in community in order to obey what Jesus said, abide in me, and you do that by loving one another. And Rob gave this really cool Formula One car illustration. He says, we don't want to build a multi-million dollar race car only to have a lug nut that strips and you lose the race. And I guess that's what exactly happened to Mercedes one year. We, we want to make sure that we're building a car that can win. And, and so the idea to our faith is that loving one another is pretty central to making that happen that we are to be committed as brothers and sisters to one another because we are family in Jesus Christ. And that's why we're emphasizing at Sardis Fellowship this whole idea come the fall to be connected into a life group. And it's going to take on various forms. It won't all look the same, but life groups are a place where others know you and you know others and together you can grow up and mature in Christ. So that's where we have been. It's also where we're going. And today I'm going to speak to us on this whole idea of growing up in Christ through grace. Grace, God's grace shown to me. And then that same grace of God that I have, I now show to others. Now grace is an interesting word. It's charis in Greek. We have a camp actually just up the valley named camp or charis camp or charis camp. Uh, Many of us have been to that camp. Maybe you have too. Grace is is also a name, and it's a beautiful name, often chosen for a daughter. And sometimes we call praying for a meal grace, right? Would you like to say grace for supper tonight? Now, it's not a very commonly used word in our society. Uh, We may hear words like graceful or gracious a little more often, but rarely do you ever hear someone in everyday life refer to just grace on its own. Um, you know, like that person really showed me grace by letting me into the lineup. You just don't hear stuff like that uh, very commonly in our broader culture. It's really a word that we as Christians gravitate toward because of our understanding of the gospel. We, we know that we are saved by grace. But, but do we really understand this? I mean, Philip Yancey titled the book, What is So Amazing or What's So Amazing About Grace? And it's a great book. It resonates with me because in that book, he's talking about being a lifelong Christian and still grappling with exactly how grace works, what it is in his own life. And I feel I'm still having the aha moments over what grace is and how it works in my life. I'm sure we all have experienced grace at one point or another. And when we have experienced it, there's a beauty about it, right? Ultimately, we have experienced it in in God's grace, saving me from my sins, cleansing me from all unrighteousness. That's the greatest expression of grace that any of us could ever experience, but we have other encounters with it as well. Now, often the word mercy will be attached to the word grace. Uh, You know, we'll say, thank you, God, for your mercy and grace in my life. So what's the difference between grace and mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve when you've done something wrong. 
Uh, so hypothetically, if a police officer were to pull you over and ask, is there any good reason why I clocked you doing 21 kilometers over the speed limit tonight? And you were to say, no officer. And then he asked to see your driver's license, but you have to confess that you left it at home. And then he still chooses to give you a warning. That would be mercy. You deserved not just one ticket, but maybe two, but he lets you off, hypothetically. That's mercy, not getting what you deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is getting what you don't deserve. Something you didn't earn, so you don't deserve it, but you get it anyways. Now, <laughs> many have defined grace as unmerited favor, which just means undeserved favor, right? You don't, you don't merit getting it. Now, I remember clearly a story that happened to me where I won a prize, I didn't deserve the prize. It was grade three and our elementary school was doing this cakewalk. Uh, that's where students would make a cake and then the community would come out to an auction night and then the monies would be raised for some worthy cause. Now, if you as a student were willing to make a case for, cake for this cause, you could win a $5 gift certificate to McDonald's. Now, you need to know this was 1977 and the cost of a cheeseburger was less than 40 cents. <laughs> so I envisioned this $5 going really far. I was going to camp out at McDonald's for a week if I could win. So I went home and I made a cake with my mom. When I brought my cake in and I put it on the table alongside all the other students, I quickly saw the difference. Uh, they had sprinkles and Smarties and Jube Jubes and various cool designs. And I, on the other hand, had a very simple two-layered chocolate cake with very boring brown icing over the top. Now, the principal was Mr. Vickery. He was going to be the judge. And I liked Mr. Vickery. He had spent time in my class helping to teach me the multiplication table. And I had spent time in his office getting to know him. Uh, he had a pacemaker and he would allow his kids to get close enough to him to hear that, that pacemaker ticking. And he was a very kind man. Now he had three packets of gift certificates to give away that day. And I remember him walking around the table, placing two of the packets down in front of the best decorated cakes. So two gone, one to go. I stood behind my cake with my hands behind my back and I was trying not to look up because I didn't want to stare at him and, and, and connect eyes with him, but I, I couldn't help it. I had to look up. And when I did, our eyes locked momentarily, like just a millisecond. And Mr. Vickery, he looked to the left, he looked to the right, and then he said, Rodney, and he placed the final gift certificate in front of my cake. Now, I couldn't believe it. My cake won. Could he not see how many of the other cakes were clearly more decorative than mine? And I actually remember thinking to myself, is someone actually going to protest this? My cake didn't deserve to win when compared to the others, I think Mr. Vickery was showing me grace. It was undeserved favor. I find it interesting, as I think over the years of my life, when I've been the recipient of grace and someone's been gracious toward me and how that feels. And yet, for some reason, it's truly hard to show that grace to others at times. It's not consistent in my life, and it's not the feeling I always have. I mean, I can put my mind to it, and sometimes it comes out, but it just doesn't feel natural. Why is it not more a core fiber of my being? It's because grace runs contrary to our human makeup, 
our sinful nature. It goes against the flow of the laws and achievements and performance and the culture that our world and religious system has. And so we grapple with grace to own it for ourselves. Now, much like love and forgiveness, grace is a pretty key aspect of our Christian faith. It's at the center of how our faith is defined. God, in his grace, gives us something we don't deserve. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Jesus, all of it. That is the unmerited favor of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's pretty central to our understanding of salvation. Now, I know I've told this story before, but years ago, I was listening to the Bill Goods show on CKNW 98, and his guest that day was Brian Stiller, who at that time represented the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Bill um, had invited him because Brian was a very good speaker and often could articulate the faith well, and so he was on his program a number of times. They got to a certain point in the conversation about grace and as it relates to salvation, and Brian said... Well, we all enter on the same grounds. No one person enters ahead of the other. No one deserves salvation more than the next person. (laughs) And Bill said to him, you mean to tell me that a person who lives a good life his entire life isn't in a better position than the one who lives a horrible life and commits crimes, and at the end of that life, if that person repents and accepts Jesus, that they get in on the same grounds as the good person? Without hesitating, Brian Stiller said, that's right, Bill. It's only on the merits of Christ that we enter, not my own. It's unmerited favor with God. Then there was this pause that felt like it went on for a while. Finally, Bill Good broke the silence with a grunt. He went, huh, let's take a break. And when we come back, I'll take your calls on this. Now, it's hard to know exactly what Bill was thinking in that moment of silence, but it felt like he was saying, are you serious about that? But for sure, I know this. He was reflecting on what grace truly meant by the definition that Brian Stiller had given him. Why? Because it goes against our human nature. Now, this kind of thinking about God and our acceptance was what got Jesus in trouble many times with the religious leaders of his day. They had a system of righteousness. It was based on keeping the law, the law of God. Uh, And they had other rules that you had to keep and do it the right way. And the better you were at this, the higher up on the ladder you got. That group, of course, that was best at this was called the Pharisees. I'm sure you've heard that title before and know what it means to be a Pharisee. Uh, They were notorious for elevating themselves based on this kind of a program, which they helped to shape, by the way. And then they would look down on others who were very far from achieving any of it. But when Jesus comes along, it's those other people that seem to have hope from Jesus, and it's the Pharisees that receive his wrath and his verbal rebuke. Why is that? You know, it it causes me to stop and think, where would I have been in my thinking at the time of Jesus if I was listening and watching him? To be honest, I don't know if I would have been inclined to understand grace the grace that Jesus displayed to people, I probably would have been more along the lines of thinking like a Pharisee. And then when I bring that question forward to today, I ask myself, do I live in a way that is more in keeping with the thinking of a Pharisee or more in keeping with Jesus? 
How is my mind framed in relationship to God and God to me and me to those around me? Is it by grace or is it by the Pharisees? Now, there's a number of stories that I could share today from the Bible about grace. Some in the New Testament, some in the Old Testament. I mean, there's Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Moses and the story of the nation of Israel itself. All of those are about grace. There's Rahab and King David and his forgiveness. Many more where if you're looking for grace in the Old Testament, you'll see God's grace. But in the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, uh, grace, grace is not the order of the day. Uh, we see God's grace being displayed through Jesus to many undeserving people, and it really kind of flies in the face of the religious thinking and the culture of the time. Jesus shows grace to the woman at the well, to Zacchaeus, to Mary Magdalene, the centurion, to the poor, to the sick, those with leprosy he touches, to sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, the undesirable people of his day. And you did not want to be associated with those people because you were a respectable person if you adhered at all to the law or morality. I want us to read one of these stories about Jesus. It's found in Luke 7, starting at verse 36. Now there's a Pharisee named Simon and he's invited Jesus to a meal. We're not told why, but most likely uh, more as a foe than a friend trying to uncover evidence to be held against Jesus. If that was the case, he was about to get what he wanted as an uninvited guest comes along. It's a woman known in the community uh, as a sinner, and she ends up there at this dinner party. So here's how Luke's gospel re records it for us, starting at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus, uh, pardon me, yes, when he invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him, owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Wow. You know, I think I love this story because 
is so far over the line. I mean, it makes me feel uncomfortable. But at that moment, it also forces me to grapple with what grace is and the grace of God in my own life, right? Uh, There's tension in this story that is just so obvious. I know how I would have been feeling if I was Simon or one of the disciples that were seated there. I'd I'd be thinking the same thing that they were. Like, who is this woman and why doesn't Jesus stop her from doing this? I mean, it seems a bit inappropriate, doesn't it? Especially if living a sinful life is code for a particular career path, which we don't know for sure. But still, shouldn't Jesus really be stopping this woman from doing this? He is the teacher. When is he going to say something about this situation? Now, at the same time as I kind of have that feeling of uncomfortableness about it, I'm absolutely blown away by the act of humility of this woman. Her public display of emotion the sorrow for her sins that are visible through her tears that drip onto Jesus' feet and she wipes them with her hair. And then she kisses her feet and she pours perfume on them. What did that look like? Did the perfume just kind of drip onto the floor? Did she rub his feet with the perfume? Like this is uncomfortable to watch, right? If you were there, you would be squirming too. It's such a raw scene, a A person so obviously overcome with emotion and so zeroed in on the one who has accepted her and shown her grace and forgiveness. I don't know what went on, but she knew something. She doesn't even care that anyone else is there. It probably doesn't even register to her that there are other people in the room. It's an intense moment of humility and sorrow and guilt and shame and all of it being poured out and lifted off of her shoulders. And it's me, I see me in her story. In a moment of me realizing God's grace in my own life as a person who's well acquainted with my own sins, maybe in a different way than hers, but the same parent. I'm the one weeping. I'm the one with a runny nose. I'm the one unable to lift my head to look at my Savior because of my shame. And he reaches down and he lifts my chin and he looks me in the eyes and he says, you're forgiven. You're my child. You're my beloved. The one who's been forgiven little loves little, which also means the one who's been forgiven much loves much. Have you felt the grace of God touching the deepest part of your being? Grabbing hold of all of who you are, every sinful thought, every sinful action brought into the light of Jesus Christ and to know the forgiveness of God for you that you're loved? What's so amazing about grace? everything. I don't care who you are, whether you think you're so good or whether you think you're so bad or whether you think you're a combination of the both. God knows who you are to the core of your being and it's only by his grace that any of us are saved. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you because you've trusted in Jesus. The grace of God that allows me to come into the family of God is the same grace of God that allows me to grow up in Christ. In fact, without grace, I can't actually grow up in Christ. And for most of us, without grace, we would give up. Righteousness is not produced in us by rules, by a stricter lifestyle, by more fear, by more law. It's powerless to produce righteousness, Paul said. Only grace draws us to the throne of God that we would desire him. 
There's a song being sung on Praise 106.5 these days called Holy Water. And there's this one part that really captures my attention. It says this, I don't want to abuse your grace. I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. <laughs> and as I think about those words, I think it's just honest language. It truly is only in the knowing and the experience of God's grace in my life, not just at the starting point of my relationship with him, but every day that motivates me to want to change, to want to obey him and to want to love him above all else. Don't hear me wrong. Grace is not an excuse for sin. Paul says very clearly in Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? This is not a, a game that we play whereby we think, oh, it'll be fine. We wink at sin as if it has no consequence. It does. But I think that in the moment that we think we don't need grace anymore in our lives, we're just deceiving ourselves. Probably everyone else around us can see that we need grace in our lives, but we hide behind being respectable. We show each other the version of ourselves that we want people to see. But the truth is that none of us is that person all of the time. And the irony is that God knows it. So yes, grace is elusive. I have this prayer bookmark in my Bible where in 2019 I, I wrote on there, this year my prayer is to become a more gracious person. And then a year later, in 2020, it simply says this, still my prayer. I've been reading a book lately that talks about the fact we all have an imposter. The imposter is a version of you that you hide from other people because you think that they wouldn't accept you if they knew who that was. And the point of the book is to get us to realize that we can't hide that imposter from God. He knows the good version of us and he knows the bad version. And by his grace, he's chosen to truly love all of us. And the insight here in the book is that I need to embrace all of who I am as God embraces all of whom I am so that I'm more likely to come into the light, to desire God, to live for him, to obey him. Now next week, Pastor Tim is going to be sharing more on this topic as he talks about churches that heal and the need for vulnerability. So I won't go further on into that, but I will say this. There's something very honest and humbling and might I add healing and freeing when we practice the words of James confess your sins to one another we truly do need one another in the body of Christ to grow up together and if we're going to live this way we need to extend the same grace to others that has been extended to us I love the verses in Hebrews 4 14 and 16 they inspire me to draw near to God in his presence says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Profess, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is so beautiful. I want to encourage us today 
to know God's grace first and foremost for yourself in your own relationship with God. That's the starting point. In Christ, he loves you. You are his. And then secondly, as his child, allow that amazingness of his grace to spill out in your relationships, in our homes, in our church family, and in our community to those who don't know Jesus Christ and God's love for them. That's how this is to work. I'd like to lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, as I think about my own journey in life, so many years knowing the gospel message and yet still grappling with what grace really is, I would pray for a heart of humility that would embrace the truth of what you have done for us and in us and what you want to do through us, that we might be a people who are moved by compassion for those around us to help our brother and sister, whether in our homes or whether in our church family, to grow up together in Christ, or whether in our community to a person who has yet to hear the good news of the gospel message of the grace of Jesus Christ, which saves us. And so I would pray that you would move us to be a people that lives in your grace and lives it out. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are our discussion questions for today. Can you think of a time in your life that someone showed you grace? How did it make you feel? Why is grace so central to the Christian faith? How would you describe grace to someone who does not know the gospel message? Does God's grace motivate you to want to live for him? If so, how do you see that working in your life? God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.